You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was being human in a fragmenting world. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. To receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at NashvilleLabrieConference.com. Today's episode features Ben Kyes and the lecture, The True Object of Human Longing, Re-Embracing Dominion and Trust. Ben and his wife, Nikayla, serve as workers at the Southboro branch of Labrie. One of the things that we do talk about a lot uh, at Labrie, and I think the talks have reflected that over the last few days, is the idea that we are whole people, and that includes our minds, our rationality, uh, as well as our hearts and our desires. And whenever we emphasize one and neglect the other, we really uh, are not treating ourselves as full human beings, and there's always consequences to that. And one of the things that I want to talk about uh, this afternoon is this idea of human longing, which is very much what Dick was referencing in his first, in the first lecture of the weekend, um, that we're not, not just uh, brains on sticks, as James K. Smith says, we're not just brains on sticks, but we are creatures that, that long and desire and worship and love. And maybe that's even a more primary motivator for who we are in our lives than than um, the facts that we, that we hold in our brains. And so I'm going to be looking very much at that, predominantly at that side of what it is to be a human being, not because that's the only important side, as Rob was saying today, but because that's a, uh, a side that sometimes gets less attention. Uh, I will just say also before I start that... Um, uh, I remember Dick comparing conference uh, to drinking from a, a fire hydrant uh, in terms of the amount of content within a small amount of time. So you're you're sort of absorbing all this stuff, and you're you know you're you know you you paid to be here, and you're going to take advantage. You're going to you know go to every workshop slot, and then and then hope to process it later on slowly. And uh, but really, being at Labrie at a branch of Labrie is a a, a much more more balanced rhythm of life, and there's, there's plenty of content, but there's also time to work, and time to reflect together, and time to eat meals together, and hang along in Splitwood, and things like that, and so I would just recommend to any of you, uh, if, you're, if you're able, to look into that possibility of coming to a branch. It's not the same thing as a conference, it's really not, um, although it shares uh, a lot in terms of engagement with ideas. But. So, uh, my topic today is the true object of human longing, re-embracing dominion and trust, uh, I'm really interested, as I said, in this topic of human longing, and it's an exciting topic to me because despite the diversity of, of, of people there are in the world, people with completely different beliefs, backgrounds, experiences, preferences, uh, people of different races and cultures, um, there seem to be some very basic fundamental longings that are common to most people, that, that are deeper and more profound than the daily wants that we have, uh, which can be very diverse. Right? 
when I was a student at the English Library, um, there was a worker there who, who said something that stuck with me ever since. He said, people are complex, but they're very rarely bizarre. <laughs> and what he meant was, under all the layers of complexity in people's stories, uh, most people hunger for roughly the same thing. You know, we're not, you know, very few people are bizarre. Very often, when we're confused by our interactions with other people, it's the complexity <laughs> that we haven't yet understood. And I think we maybe mistake complexity for bizarreness in people sometimes. Uh, but most people do hunger for a short list of things in terms of their most deep, their deepest longings. Um, because of the fact that we share the image of God with every other living person, we should expect to see some very deep commonalities in our most basic human longings. I think this should not surprise us as Christians if we believe in the image of God. Uh, the image of God is the one thing that every person shares, and it's deeper and more fundamental to our identity than anything else that makes people different from each other. Uh, Mary Van Leeuwen, I, I believe it was Mary Van Leeuwen, said um, the, uh, the image of God is the only thing that goes all the way down. So I like that idea. It's the only thing, only characteristic of a human being that really goes all the way down. In other words, uh, every other thing that, that distinguishes one person from another isn't as deep as that, as the image of God. It's so fundamental. So... Human longing is important to think about, particularly, I think, for ourselves, but as well as for our interactions with friends and people who do not share our faith. Because if we pay close attention and, and name what people long for, I think it's one of the clearest pointers to who made us and what we are made for. In other words, our purpose. What we find in the human heart does not prove that Christianity is true, I don't think. But I think Christianity is, most, is the most plausible explanation for what we do find in the human heart. Uh, the glorious things and the ruinous things. We don't, we don't, it's not just roses and lollipops that we find in the human heart. Um, but uh, the Christian story accounts for what we find when we look in, in, into the human heart. And the question that I have, really, the, the, the thing I'm sort of aiming for and, and hopefully uh, will send you away thinking about, is that to what extent there is an apologetics of longing for today. I know that C.S. Lewis did a lot of, of very helpful writing on desire in his day and what our desires indicate. But uh, for today, what is, what is an apologetics of longing that's, that's plausible to people today that can... Um, connect with people today. A way of encouraging people to examine the source and purpose of their own desires. Why are they there? Where do they come from? Uh, the well-known 17th century hymn, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of Creation. Anybody know? Just keep singing. I'm just going <laughs> to put my whistle. Have you known? Okay. Uh, Joachim Neander. I'm not sure. I'm not Dutch. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Jo- Joachim, um, <clears throat> 1680. Uh, have you not seen how your desires have been granted and what he ordaineth? Uh, is this true? 
<laughs> or is it not true? That's, that's, that's an open question for you all today. Is this true? <laughs> was he on to something or was he not? <laughs> um, have you not seen how your desires have been granted in what he ordaineth? <clears throat> so I'm going to start by reading a couple of excerpts. The, the best way to get into these, these, I'm really talking about two desires that I think are very fundamental to, to what it is to be a human being. And I thought the best way to, uh, to enter into those two desires is to read a couple of excerpts from different, from different books that are illustrations of those desires. And then we'll talk about what they are later. So the first is from G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. It's literally, if you, never, if you don't make it even ten pages into this book, you will get to this passage. It's on page one. So... <laughs> I made it a little bit further than that, but, but good stuff right in the beginning. So, um, so orthodoxy, and this is what he says. And this is a typical Chesterton. He's very playful and paradoxical in the way he writes. This is just uh, something to, to get used to if you're going to read him. <clears throat> I have often had a fancy for writing a romance about an English yachtsman who slightly miscalculated his course and discovered England under the impression that it was a new island in the South Seas. (laughs) I always find, however, that I am either too busy or too lazy to write this fine work, so I may as well give it away for the purposes of philosophical illustration. There will probably be a general impression that the man who landed, armed to the teeth and talking by signs, to plant the British flag on that barbaric temple which turned out to be the pavilion at Brighton, <laughs> felt rather a fool. I'm not here concerned to, uh, I'm not here concerned to deny that he looked a fool, but if you imagine that he felt a fool, or that at any rate that the sense of folly was his soul or his dominant emotion, then you have not studied with sufficient delicacy the rich romantic nature of the hero of this tale. His mistake was really a most enviable mistake, and he knew it, if he is the man I take him for. What could be more delightful than to have in the same few minutes all the fascinating terrors of going abroad, combined with all the humane security of coming home again? (laughs) What could be better than to have all the fun of discovering South Africa without the disgusting necessity of going there, landing Sorry for any South Africans in the room. <laughs> what could be more glorious than to brace oneself up to discover New South Wales and then realize with a gush of happy tears that it was really Old South Wales? <laughs> this at least seems to me the main problem for philosophers and is in a manner the main problem of this book. How can we contrive to be at once astonished at the world and yet at home in it? How can this world give us at once the fascination of a strange town and the comfort and honor of being our own town? That's where I'm going to stop. There's more. Obviously, there's much more there. But and then for something a little bit different from the Hobbit, I met a kid named Thorin today. I don't know if he's in the room. Yeah, awesome. It's a good name. All right. So it's talking about Bilbo Baggins, the main character. Again, this is on page one. This is how far I get into book. <laughs> it's pathetic. Okay. <laughs> this hobbit was a very well-to-do hobbit, and his name was Baggins. 
The Bagginses had lived in the neighborhood of the hill for time out of mind, and people considered them very respectable. Not only because most of them were rich, but also because they never had any adventures or did anything unexpected. You could tell what a Baggins would say on any question without the bother of asking him. <laughs> this is a story of how a Baggins had an adventure and found himself doing and saying things altogether unexpected. He may have lost the neighbor's respect, but he gained, well, you will see whether he gained anything in the end. Now, you know enough to go on with, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. As I was saying, the mother of this hobbit, of Bilbo Baggins, that is, was the famous Belladonna Took, one of the three remarkable daughters of the old Took, head of the hobbits who lived across the water, the small river that ran at the foot of the hill. It had always been said that long ago, one or the other of the Tooks had married into a fairy family. The less friendly had said a goblin family. Certainly, there was still something not entirely hobbit-like about them, and once in a while, members of the Took clan would go and have adventures. They discreetly disappeared, and the family hushed it up. But the fact remained that the Tooks were not as respectable as the Bagginses, though they were undoubtedly richer. <laughs> still, it is probable that Bilbo, her son, although he took and behaved exactly, he looked and behaved exactly like a second edition of his solid and comfortable father, got something a bit queer in his makeup from the Took side. Something that only waited for a chance to come out. I forgot to change my slide. There you go. <clears throat> the chance never arrived until Bilbo Baggins was grown up, being about 50 years old or so, and living in the beautiful hobbit hole built by his father, which I have just described for you, until he had, in fact, apparently settled down immovably. And then, a little bit later, the dwarves come to his house, they start singing their songs and telling their tales, and as he's listening to them sing their song, this is what he thinks in his head. As they sang, the hobbit felt the love of beautiful things, made by hands and by cunning and by magic moving through him, a fierce and a jealous love, the desire of the hearts of dwarves. Then, something Tookish woke up inside him, and he wished to go, and to see the great mountains, and to hear the pine trees, and the waterfalls, and explore the caves, and wear a sword instead of a walking stick. He looked out the window. The stars were out in a dark sky above the trees. He thought of the jewels of the dwarves shining in dark caverns. Suddenly, in the wood beyond the water, a flame leapt up, probably somebody lighting a wood fire, and he thought of plundering dragons settling on his quiet hill and kindling it all to flames. He shuddered, and very quickly he was playing Mr. Baggins of Bag End Underhill again. Yeah. That's all. You'll have to read the rest of The Hobbit on your own time. Later on in the book, uh, this is after his adventure has begun, and he's miserable, and he's off on some mountainside in the rain. He says this, And I'm sure the rain has got into the dry clothes and into the food bags, thought Bilbo. Bother burglaring and everything to do with it. I wish I was at home in my nice hole by the fire with a kettle just beginning to sing. It was not the last time that he wished that. <laughs> and then one last reading. See, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of... Uh, building up the material here for what we're going to be talking about today. One last reading comes from The Wind of the Willows. I'm not going to read as much as I uh, 
would like to. <laughs> but uh, the whole story begins with Mole, who is in his hole during spring cleaning and whitewashing his ceiling, and he just gets so sick of it that he just throws it down and says, bother, or hang, hang washing, and he leaves. And he sets out running across the field. He has this amazing sense of freedom and exploration at its springtime, and he comes across a river which he's never seen before, and he meets his friend the rat, and then his adventures begin, and he doesn't even, he doesn't even look back. He just leaves his home. So that's, that's the, uh, the beginning. Months later, this is Christmas Eve now, so they're in the snow and it's cold and they're trudging across the countryside far, far away from Rat's home. And this happens. Suddenly the summons reached him. This is talking about Mole. Rat's walking ahead of him through the snow. Does anyone know this part of the story? <laughs> Mole's walking behind him. <clears throat> Suddenly the summons reached him and it took him like an electric shock. We others who have long lost the more subtle of the physical senses, he's talking about human beings, have not even proper terms to express an animal's intercommunications with his surroundings, living or otherwise, and have only the word smell, for instance, to include the whole range of delicate thrills which murmur in the nose of the animal night and day, summoning, warning, inciting, repelling. It was one of these mysterious fairy calls from out of the void that suddenly reached Mole in the darkness, making him tingle through and through with its very familiar appeal. Even while, as yet, he could not clearly remember what it was, he stopped dead in his tracks, his nose searching hither and thither in its efforts to recapture the fine filament, the telegraphic current that had so strongly moved him. A moment, and he had caught it again, and with it, this time, came recollection in fullest flood. Home. That was what they meant. Those caressing appeals, those soft touches wafted through the air, those invisible little hands pulling and tugging all one way. Why, it must be quite close by him at that moment, his old home that he had hardly forsaken and never sought again that day when he first found the river. And now it was sending out its scouts and its messengers to capture him and bring him in. Since his escape on that bright morning, he had hardly given it a thought. So absorbed had he been in his new life in all its pleasures, its surprises, its fresh and captivating experiences. Now, sorry, I keep forgetting to do that. That's what you want to do. <clears throat> now, with a rush of old memories, how clearly it stood up before him in the darkness. Shabby indeed, and small, and poorly furnished, and yet his, the home he had made for himself, the home he had been so happy to get back to after his day's work, and the home had been happy with him, too, evidently, and was missing him, and wanted him back, and was telling him so, through his nose, sorrowfully, reproachfully, but with no bitterness or anger, only with plaintive reminder that it was there, and wanted him. <laughs> okay. So, it's probably slowly becoming clear what we're talking about. All of these quotes have something in common. They suggest that people, though we've only been talking about people in one of the cases, hobbits and moles as well, <laughs> um, tend to have two very deep desires. Uh, each person feels the pull of both to some extent in their lives. On the one hand, there's the desire for adventure, to explore, to experience newness, to be in the presence of something wild and unexpected to be challenged, to face hurdles, 
In Chesterton's words, astonished, to be astonished. It requires things that are unfamiliar. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, a desire to come home, to find security, to be known, to find familiar things. To me, is an image of laying down your pack by the door and letting your guard down, maybe sitting down by the fire, putting your feet up, uh, to hear your name spoken with recognition. In other words, to not be astonished, <laughs> to be home. And uh, I grew up in Boston where supposedly the TV show Cheers was, was, uh, was from, and the theme song to Cheers would be like, you know, don't you want to go where everybody knows your name? <laughs> And it's, it's very sentimental and everything, but there's something true in there. We do, we do want to be somewhere where people know our name. <laughs> we can see how these two desires seem to pull in very, very different directions. So to experience both amazement and comfort, adventure and security, newness and familiarity, uh, to set out and to come back, to meet new people and yet be known by people. Uh, these seem to be almost opposite desires, right? Longings that if we pursue them will lead us into totally different directions, totally, totally different ways of life. So it seems like an unreasonable request of life to expect to be fulfilled in both of these ways, and both of these desires satisfied. I did a workshop yesterday on unrealistic and contradictory expectations of life. Is this one of them? That we would somehow find a way to satisfy these two Desires, But in reality, uh, most of us feel the pull of both. Uh, we have some baggins and some took in us. Uh, the baggins side of ourselves longs for the whistling kettle, and the tookish side of us longs to strap on a sword and walk out the door, and maybe never come back. <laughs> uh, somehow we intuit that there's something good about both, I think. I think it's sometimes easy to feel this intuition in a negative sense. In other words, we don't directly see the goodness of the desire, but we experience the frustration of it being denied. But even the frustration is an indication that the desire is a real part of our nature. When we're frustrated about something that's denied to us, it indicates that maybe that's something to pay attention to. So here's what I mean. When we travel for weeks on end, most of us, if we have a home, start to miss it so much that we experience it as a kind of sickness, homesickness. We talk about this. It's an ape, right? Uh, Mole refers to it as a summons. <laughs> He's getting summoned by his own. Um, people who have moved every few years growing up, whether they're because of their parents' work or whatever, uh, often grow up to feel very rootless as adults. And it's a painful feeling to know that Nothing is really pinning you down anywhere. Uh, there is no place you feel bound to and that recognizes you. There's something not right about this, I think, and we experience that. Having a home and being known and having roots are all very wholesome things. Uh, and I think it's a way that we've been designed by God, something that we, that we are supposed to need. And so we can say that the longing for homecoming is actually a good thing. First of all, here's my outline. I always, I always update my PowerPoint a couple minutes too late. So <laughs> these are the things we're going to be talking about. And the longing for home is a good thing. 
And yet, so that's one point. And yet, many of us also feel uh, we've experienced that at times when we felt choked and stifled and unchallenged and restless and too safe and bored. And this is probably something that most of us have experienced too. Uh, Maybe we have been dysfunctionally bound to our homes. Maybe we're overly dependent on our parents. Maybe our tendency is to retreat from risks and responsibilities and that has been enabled by people who love us. This is a very common story, I think. We know that to surrender to total apathy would be wrong somehow. It would be to fall short of a real potential that God has given us. We'll be settling for very, very small victories if that's what we do. Even if we like the security of taking no risks, we sort of know that we will go crazy if we live in our parents' basement forever. (laughs) We have to get up and head out and do something hard. And there's a wholesomeness to that kind of risk and challenge. I have have a good friend who who realized, this is before he was a Christian, but he realized as a young man, if I don't get out and do something hard, I'm just going to smoke pot and play video games for the rest of my life. And so he, he joined AmeriCorps and went and taught somewhere on the other side of the country. And it was hard. And, and it actually did change the course of his life radically. <clears throat> so, uh, in these kinds of situations, we use the word comfort zone in a negative sense. Right? Comfort zone. Uh, almost exclusively in a negative way. I, 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 uh, it's a place that we're, we're living, but we need to break out of. We need to, to get past it. So you can also say that the longing to set out and accomplish something to set ourselves against a new challenge. That's a good thing as well. But both of these seemingly contradictory desires, uh, if they're right and good, how can that be? We hope that somehow we can can have uh, both of them at the same time. That they don't actually exclude each other the way they seem to. Uh, the expression, have your cake and eat it, comes to mind. We want both. Somehow to find the fulfillment for our longing for challenge and adventure and the security of home. And I think many sensible people have discovered that a healthy life depends on some practical balance between the two. The times when it's appropriate to sit out and take risks and times when it's better to retreat and take stock. Uh, As far as practical life goes, this is very true. Sort of a a rhythm of these things. Uh, In our culture, I think we have, for a long time, we've associated these two desires with different Uh, stages in in life and development. We sort of expect younger people to be more adventurous, more willing to pull up stakes and take off and take risks. But there comes a time, you know, when uh, the rambling is expected to come to an end and uh, someone should pick a town, settle down, and uh, pick a career and stop changing jobs and get married and stop serial dating and and, uh, all those things. It's sort of a cultural expectation that's out there or, or a norm. But of course, these kinds of cultural expectations are constantly being challenged, and what I just said isn't even as true now as it it was uh, ten years ago, probably. Um, The world is filled with with many older people that are reinventing themselves, and many young people who are paralyzed and not doing anything at all, and just uh, paralyzed by a sense of infinite options. And even in the life of the church, I think there's something that's good and healthy in this, in this kind of rhythm. If you think of uh, what the church is really supposed to be, the place for, 
for believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, to gather, to worship God, to be reminded of what reality is, to be equipped, to take the sacrament, all the things that church is, and then set out into the world and be ministers of the gospel themselves. Uh, maybe get a little beat up throughout the week and then come back and uh, to the home that the church is supposed to be, right? Brothers and sisters, to get in touch with what is most real again, to get equipped again, maybe to recover a little bit and then set out. This is a, this is a good and a healthy thing, I think, a fluctuation. Um, but when we think about these desires in a, in a bigger, broader, in a sense, deeper, a deeper sense within ourselves, uh, which are we supposed to pursue, given that they seem to contradict each other? Um, the answer is yes. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about what these longings look like when they're misdirected because that's one of the ways in which we see them functioning is, is, is by their um, lack of functioning I think they're very very deep as I said to what it is to be a human uh, and they manifest themselves in ways that are not always good and healthy um, just because God planted certain desires in us does not mean that we pursue those desires toward their intended goal our creational desires have been detached from their true object because of the fall and our sin. We still have something of those desires, but we are at sea. Um, but they continue to move and to function and to motivate us, uh, but in a chaotic and unanchored way. We're not anchored in the way that we were before the fall. As Rob was saying earlier today, our, our, our hearts... Are important. It's important to know our hearts and to and to um, to attend to what is there in terms of our desires. But our hearts are not always reliable guides. If we the changing of the guard image to okay, forget about rationality. It's the heart that we need to attend it to. That's that's he's right when he says that's a very dangerous thing. Um, <clears throat> so the hymn again. Have you not seen how your desires have been granted in what he ordaineth? Really. Don't our desires get us in trouble more often than not? <laughs> Sometimes. Uh, most people, I think, are a bundle of confused longings. Many of the people today we meet in the world and, and uh, experiencing strong desires but wandering through life without being able to name what it is, uh, without any lasting object of their longings or any, any uh, consistent ones. And so there are many ways in which we see the two desires at work but, but misfunctioning, as I said. Um, think of people who are uh, embracing with all their passion something new every few weeks and then jettisoning it and moving on to something else. One of the other characters in The Wind in the Willows is Toad. And this, is, this is his way of approaching life. Just obsession with one thing. Everything else is stupid and boring. And then it lasts a couple weeks until he finds something else. And then, oh, that old thing is stupid and boring. It's this, you know. So um, that, that's his character, that, that's the sort of main characteristic of him, of Toad. Uh, but one of the ways, uh, I'll just look at a couple of different ways in which these desires are misdirected. And one of them is that they can be uh, way out of proportion. In other words, uh, Chesterton describes 
this, this explorer that experiences the fulfillment of both at the same time, right? In equal measure. He, he, he feels like he's setting out into uncharted territory, and yet he discovers he's come home. And it's that pleasure that is so uh, beautiful to him. Uh, and yet we see in many people, and in ourselves, a tendency to always favor one heavily over the other. So all of us probably know some people who are thrill seekers and others who are homebodies. <laughs> And maybe one, you know, maybe we are some of those things. Um, in, in extreme terms, it's the claustrophobics and the agoraphobics. Not literally, maybe, but, but that's just sort of the extreme way of putting it. Um, thrill seekers, there are people who can never settle down, uh, who have to move from one novel experience to the next, uh, or they're restless. Uh, people who are, uh, it may be as a result of, of a hard time, um, developing close relationships, and they very often result in them never finding community of any kind. Uh, but this need to keep going, to find the next new thing, the next compelling um, challenge. Even if we long for community and friendship, the longing to keep moving seems to outweigh it. It feels dangerous to trust people and to be trusted, because trust tends to breed responsibilities. Relationships amount to people who will inevitably, you'll hurt when you leave. There's all these kinds of things. Settling down uh, and finding a home feels more stifling than comforting. Perhaps there are bad memories and pain and unresolved conflict, but in any case, it's much easier to keep moving. Never settle down. Um, Anybody interested in the Enneagram, this is like a number seven, not functioning well. Or there are people who never set out at all, who are so attached to home, to comfort, to security that they never step out the door. They may be intimidated by the world outside, the people, the dangers, the risks, the potential of difficult commitments, or the potential of failure, the potential of embarrassment, all the anxiety that comes with those things. Sometimes people's biggest fear is is appearing stupid to other people. Uh, I have some of that in me. Uh, But it it sometimes can be enough to keep someone motionless, committed to to stasis in their life. The world is not a place of potential and possibility, but of danger and fear and shame and potential exposure and embarrassment. So these are totally polar opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Uh, we see different people whose temperaments lead them towards one over the other, right? You leave one behind and emphasize the other. And again, we see somehow, some way, the desire for challenge and adventure and the desire for home should coexist because when they don't coexist, it's imbalanced. Uh, it's even pathological sometimes for some people. Uh, if one is stressed to the neglect of the other, something is wrong, and we can see the effects of that in people's lives. Uh, I'll just go on a very short tangent here and say that in many, uh, in many Christian circles, these two poles, the, the, the desire to be challenged and set out and to achieve something, and then the desire to, to be home and to be safe and secure, uh, these have been often associated with the sexes, right? Uh, a lot of thinking about gender roles has come out of it. Um, I just want to say that I, I really view these two desires as being fundamentally human 
and, and neither one uh, universally applies to one sex or the other, actually. Um, and you can talk, we can talk about that later if you want, but um, I think there's, there's, uh, it's much more complicated than just saying that w women are naturally uh, <clears throat> more drawn to security and home and men are more naturally drawn to you know, an adventure and a, something to conquer, right? Uh, there's, there's something that we see in, in uh, both of these desires in every person, I think, really. Um, all right. <clears throat> Another way in which we can see these desires um, misdirected, I think, is when we seek fulfillment by pursuing things that in themselves are just very bad. I mean, we often do that. Uh, things that end up being terribly destructive to ourselves and others. So... Uh, I don't have any statistics here or anything like that, but I just, I, I have a hunch uh, that, um, or I'll say I wonder, how often the longing for novelty and exploration and excitement has led eventually to marital infidelity? How often has it caused people to forsake their husbands or wives? Uh, to associate fidelity with boredom and staleness, being stifled, holy deadlock, uh, terribly cynical way of referring to marriage. Uh, your spouse is just too familiar to be interesting anymore. Or, maybe this is closer to the truth, simply knows you too well to admire you in the way you want to be admired anymore. Um, I wonder how many pornography addictions start in this way, the promise of infinite sexual novelty with no relational risk, with no possibility of embarrassment, you're alone, uh, but leading to greater and greater isolation and boredom and uh, uh, a diminishing possibility of a healthy relationship the further you go. Uh, these are very, very sad things that are prevalent. It's everywhere in our culture today, and, and uh, to me it's a sign of, of the role of these desires uh, at work in sad ways. Uh, a third way I think that these desires can misfunction is uh, they can be directed uh, towards one person. And the expectation can be that this one other person is supposed to fulfill these two desires for me in my life. Uh, something that no one person can do, actually. The psychologist Esther Perel, she has a, a very compelling TED talk if you want to, um, but she wrote a book called Mating in Captivity. Interesting. It's about sexual desire within marriage, mating in captivity. Um, and I'll, I'll read a quote from her TED talk, which I, which I at, at some length, it's, but it's really worth it. And, and it's, I heard this just a couple weeks ago on the radio, and I was so blown away by it. She's really saying exactly what I've been saying, not as a Christian, but these these two desires. It's, um, I'm sure she was thinking these thoughts before I wrote this lecture. I'm not claiming that uh, she plagiarized or anything like that, but. Um, so she says, so what sustains desire and why is it so difficult? And at the heart of sustaining desire in a committed relationship, I think, is the reconciliation of two fundamental human needs. On the one hand, our need for security, for predictability, for safety, for dependability, for reliability, for permanence. All these anchoring, grounding experiences of our lives that we call home. But we also have an equally strong need, men and women, for adventure, for novelty, for mystery, for risk, for danger, for the unknown, for the unexpected. Surprise. You get the gist. 
for journey, for travel. So reconciling our need for security and our need for adventure into one relationship, or what we today like to call a passionate marriage, used to be a contradiction in terms. Marriage was an economic institution in which you were given a partnership for life in terms of children and social status and succession and companionship. But now we want our partner to still give us all these things. Did I skip? Yeah, sorry. <clears throat> You'll catch up. <laughs> but now we want our partner to give us all these things. But in addition, I want you to be my best friend and my trusted confidant and my passionate lover to boot. And we live twice as long. <laughs> it's good that you laugh because it says laughter there. <laughs> She goes on. So we come to one person and we basically are asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging. Give me identity. Give me continuity. Give me transcendence and mystery and all in one. Give me comfort. Give me edge. Give me novelty. Give me familiarity. Give me predictability. Give me surprise. And we think it's a given. And toys and lingerie are going to save us with that. So, anyway. I heard this on the radio, I'm like, man, this is exactly, this is exactly what I'm talking about. But she's, she is referring to the danger of freighting our need for these two things onto any one person in life. All right? Somehow your romantic partner, your, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, or your husband, or your wife is supposed to, supposed to fulfill this thing for us. And she, she's very critical of that expectation because she says a whole village used to, used to meet the needs of each person. Uh, I agree with her there. My question is, I'm not really sure how much the whole village ever really totally fulfilled those desires. <laughs> the, the whole village maybe got a lot further than one person could. <laughs> but in any case, <clears throat> I think another observation, I think our current obsession with virtual reality technology, just the, the, the almost messianic language used to describe it, uh, this new digital platform that is going to revolutionize our lives. Uh, it's a sign of, us, of our desire to fulfill our longing for both strangeness and security at the same time. We're being promised the experience or the impression of novel faraway adventures, literally from the comfort of our couches. Uh, a diversity of experiences with absolutely no risk at all. You can fly a jet into the Grand Canyon. You can shoot aliens uh, without your heart rate getting above what it usually gets when you're sitting on the couch. Um, and this is a way in which just a, just a very base consumerism is, 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 uh, is there to try to supply these needs for us, these desires. Um, uh, developmental psychologists, psychologists you know, who study uh, the development of children often say that toddlers, I'm not sure where this, I've heard this uh, mentioned many times, uh, a, normal, a normal state for a toddler uh, is to expect to be omnipotent and totally safe at once. A toddler thinks they can step out and not, you know, and uh, nothing bad will happen to me. Uh, uh, and yet, you know, and, and as as we grow older, ideally, we realize that this is not really true. We're never totally safe. We're never totally omnipotent. And those two things certainly can't exist at the same time. <laughs> um, and yet, 
I think virtual reality is trying to bring us back to that toddler experience of being omnipotent and totally secure, totally safe. Um, so uh, even if the technology advances in leaps and bounds in terms of the realism of the experience, will it ever be able to satisfy us? Will it ever stand in uh, as a way to fulfill the authentic human longing for reality, for real newness, for real safety? You could die of a heart attack on your couch, right? Um, is it satisfying to know that we've pursued our most deep longings by essentially tricking ourselves? The comedian John Christ uh, pokes fun at the uh, consumerism associated with virtual reality and the way that Christians have bought into it. Has anyone seen this virtual reality church? It's terrible. Um, <laughs> I laugh very hard, and then I'm like, felt bad for laughing very hard. Like, uh, anyway, but um, it's an ad, it's a fake advertisement for virtual reality church, and so he's standing here in his bedroom with his with his <laughs> VR goggles on and. Uh, and uh, you don't have to go to church anymore. You can just have it right here. You can, you can experience it right here. Uh, a supposed encounter with God in which you are in complete control. You can adjust the settings to whatever you want, including the tightness of your worship leader's jeans. <laughs> you don't want a worship leader with jeans that are too baggy these days. It's just not cool enough. So, um, Obviously, it's, 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 very, it's very sharp satire, but uh, there's something, something he's getting at. He's mocking complicity of Christians in this kind of consumerism when it comes to worshiping God. Uh, I'm not really sure where he's at himself, but he definitely nails some problems. <laughs> um, <clears throat> So this paradoxical promise of risk and safety, I think for many people, is just intrinsic to, to how the Internet has functioned for a long time. So the, the VR isn't, isn't uh, anything new in one sense, because for years we've been able to experience the sensation of being bold while taking no risks. Uh, we can go online, we can find any random chat room we want and lambaste someone uh, who you'll never ever meet. And you'll never know their real name, and they'll never know you, and they will never have an opportunity to confront you face-to-face. And we see this in the the sort of escalation of tone in people's tweets and all this stuff. You're just removed from the natural consequences of insulting people. You don't feel any of the consequences. Not that I approve of this kind of thing. I have young children, but think of the thrills of a good middle school fight in the hallway, Right? Uh, without the possibility of black eyes and bloody noses, without knowing, uh, or, sorry, without showing your face or, or getting your fingernails dirty, without having to, um, as Craig Gay says, or a professor that we had at Regent, uh, without having to stand behind your words or own up to your speech. We don't have to stand behind our words and own up to our speech. Our, our words become really out of line. <laughs> So I think the presence of the two deep longings is at the root of a lot of, of the seductiveness of much of our digital technology today, to feel powerful and safe, to feel assertive and protected. And the appeal of this kind of technology is just a symptom of the two deep longings that I've been talking about. Uh, they are real, and as humans we can't help but pursue them, even if we're pursuing them wrongly. 
So, uh, to review, I think we, we, uh, we have a broken relationship with these desires and we pursue them in an imbalanced way, emphasizing one or the other, or we are motivated by these desires and pursue goals that we have no business pursuing, and then we also attempt to find the fulfillment of these goals in one place, either in one person or in one technology. <clears throat> Now I want to, to, to keep moving on. Our third section here, longings found. What does it mean that these could be redirected? All of this dysfunction does not mean that desire and longings are bad. It means that we are experts at finding false objects for good desires. But is it realistic to hope for fulfillment of these seemingly contradictory desires? Uh, adventure and safety? Is there any ultimate satisfaction for these two things? Um, can we approach what, what Chesterton's fictional character experienced? Um, I think the Bible does not actually encourage us to, to hope that we can find total fulfillment for these two things in life. Not, not a total satisfaction. Um, the ultimate object of our longings is not in a uh, healthy, balanced lifestyle, although these, this is very wise to live a balance, in a balanced way regarding these two desires. Um, the promise of the Bible is that these two seemingly conflicting longings are met in the one living God himself. Not that the God of the universe exists to meet our desires. Um, I think it's more helpful to think of it the other way around. We experience those two desires because God is the one who made us. They are pointers to what is true about us, about God, and about our creational purpose. They even correspond to aspects of who God is. And that's what I want to talk about next. Um, God is the infinite and personal God. And this is something that Francis Schaeffer talked about a lot uh, emphasize this as crucial to understanding the, 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 the God of the Bible. Uh, if you, if you um, ignore one or the other, you don't get the God of the Bible. You get something else. <clears throat> and these two attributes don't really come together anywhere else. Uh, we can imagine a concept of infinity. I can't, but maybe some people can. A concept of infinity, maybe some mathematical concept of infinity. Uh, or we can imagine a person who's limited and finite, like us, a friend. Uh, but only God is infinite and a person. He's the only one who has always existed, who stands above, beyond, and apart from the universe he's made. Nothing can contain him. Nothing caused him. As, as Dick said uh, yesterday morning, he is from himself. Everything else that we can possibly name is from him. But he is from himself. There's nothing behind him pulling the strings. He's eternal, immortal, unchangeable, uncontainable. This is God's transcendence. And it's this idea that God is infinite is a part of that. And yet, he is a person. He knows us. He can speak to us. He desires that we would speak to him. He's right beside us all the time, aware of what is in our hearts. That's a, a comforting thing sometimes and a horrifying thing other times. Um, he knows us better than we know ourselves, and this is the imminence of God. He's right with us 
He knows us by His Spirit. He's even indwelling us. He's with His church. Um, this is the nearness of God, the personhood of God. Psalm 8 is a wonderful psalm that revels in this dual reality. Um, I'm just going to read some of it, starting in verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. The whole psalm ends, verse 9, with Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And I think... The psalmist is saying the name of the Lord is majestic, not just because he created the night sky, but because given who he is, given that he did create the night sky, he sees fit to notice and honor human beings. That's that's what makes God's name majestic, is those two things together. Uh, We are tiny specks on a slightly larger speck in space, and yet we have a special place in God's creation. He's honored us, not just tolerated us. Um, it's the coming together of his immensity and his notice of us and his care for us that overwhelms the psalmist. That, that's what makes the psalmist just, he has, to, he has to launch into poetry to express himself. He can't, he can't um, explain it in any other way. And so it's this coming together, I think, where we do find uh, ultimately a fulfillment of our two great longings to these two things. On the one hand, God is the one who rightly inspires awe, who should inspire awe in us. We are made to wonder at him. We will never come to the end of him. There's endless newness in him. There'll always be more to learn. Uh, my coworker Dave Friedrich um, has said uh, several times that, I've heard that we're, we are uh, eternal students of Christ. This is our identity. We'll always be learning from Christ. We don't, you know, we, when we come face to face with God, that isn't a, a static endpoint of our growth and our knowledge of God. Um, there is no end to who He is, to His Majesty, to His glory, and so uh, that means we're always going to be experiencing something new, learning something new. Uh, about God. No one uh, in the Bible who encounters God or speaks to Jesus winds up being bored by the experience. (laughs) Lots of other things, but not boredom. So astonishment and mystery will always be a part of knowing God. And that's good. And on the other hand, Despite uh, how unfathomable he will always be to us, we can know him truly. Not comprehensively, but rightly, because he's actually told us who he is. He's revealed who he is to us in language that we can understand. And he sent his own son. This is, if you want to know who I, what I, who I am, look at, look at Jesus Christ. So he's communicated to us in a way that we could actually know him rightly, never comprehensively, but rightly. He welcomes intimacy. We can be at home with him. To know him is to come home because he is our home. God himself is our home, our shelter, our refuge. Jesus tells us to call him Father, which is just, this is worth reflecting on. 
for a long time. We blast through it whenever we say the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Father, whatever. But the fact that Jesus doesn't just tell us, but gives us this authority to call God Father. Only He, really, can call God Father, and yet He gives us the authority to call God Father, which is this familial bond that every Christian has with God the Father through the work of Christ uh, that involves true personal knowledge, forgiveness, acceptance, love, protection, delight, trust, uh, all, the, all the imagery that's supposed to come to mind when we think of a good relationship between a child and a father. So our desires are finally met in relationship with him because in his presence alone there is awe and security. In his presence alone there is awe and security. Nowhere, I think, do we see this paradox more vividly than in in Jesus Christ himself. Jesus himself is a deep mystery. The incarnation is the central mystery of the Christian faith. Um, He is God's transcendence and imminence embodied. So in his life, death and resurrection, in every moment, in the 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 run-of-the-mill, everyday moments with Jesus, his disciples following him, ordinary times, the, the grand and seemingly distant theological realities that we can read about in the systematic theology texts, those grand and, and uh, dramatic realities and the daily earthly human realities are displayed together at once in the same thing, in the same moment. He is the Lord of all creation and he is a man in creation at once. He is the people of Israel's home, their rock and refuge, but he makes the land of Israel his home. Uh, he's someone you could have bumped into on a dusty road in Israel. Just one example. There are many, many examples, but uh, I'm sorry for the purpleness of the Rembrandt painting. But <laughs> in Matthew 8, uh, Jesus and his disciples were in a boat. The storm hits them. Jesus, their friend and teacher, is asleep because he is wiped out from a whole day of preaching. Uh, Much in the same way that you or I would be wiped out from a whole day of preaching. Um, His disciples knew this. I I imagine, doesn't say so, but I imagine they maybe spread a cloak over him. He's had a big day. (laughs) Let him Let him sleep. We can take care of the sailing. Um, the next minute, uh, the storm, the storm, the storm uh, rises up, and they instantly are aware they've lost control. And the next minute, uh, Jesus wakes up and he talks to the weather, and the weather responds instantly to his voice. And the disciples are profoundly afraid. You could say they were shaken to their core. A different kind of fear than they were afraid, you know, when they were just afraid of drowning. That's just drowning. But what is this? Um, Yeah. So they're in the presence of one who they know and love, who's familiar with them, but he's also the one who is wholly other. He's their friend, and he's shockingly unfamiliar to them in that moment, right? Then he turns to them and corrects them in normal human speech. He talks to them about their faith. Much in the same way that he just talked to the sky and the ocean. 
It's as if the storm is just another one of his unruly disciples. And then normal life goes on. Presumably they land and go get a bite to eat or something. I don't know. Back to, back to normal life with Jesus. Uh, it should, you know, it, it should blow our minds a little bit as we try to, to read imaginatively, as in center, place ourselves in the, in the story and try to react the way the disciples might have reacted. So um, I've been contrasting this awe and intimacy, both of which are right ways of relating to God because of his transcendence and his personhood. They go together. And I think that our inbuilt, inbuilt desires for astonishment and homecoming are in us in order to direct us towards the God who is astonishing and who is our home. That's why we have those desires. And as we relate to him as both infinite and personal, we're actually directing our desires for astonishment and home back towards their proper object. The reason why we have those desires in the first place. Um, we're, there's a process of reconnecting with the true object of, of those desires. In a sense, the desire for, for adventure and safety are, are, are the tools that he's given to us to begin that process. But uh, my title also mentioned dominion and trust. So what does that have to do with it? Um, Dominion and trust are aspects of our calling before God. They're ways in which God has called us to live. Um, And I think that God, in his wisdom, placed the desire for newness and challenge in us alongside the desire for safety and home as ways of helping us exercise our dominion and helping us trust him. Helping us respond to that call, to these two ways of life. Our desire leads us into dominion and trust if we are seeking God rightly. We'll back up a little bit. Um, Adam and Eve were made in God's image. And every person ever since, despite our sin and brokenness, still is an image bearer of the Lord. Because we are image bearers, we have dominion. That's something that is just an intrinsic part of what it is to be a human being. Uh, Which is an undeniable kind of power. Very often we're we're uncomfortable talking about power as being a good thing because we, everywhere we look, we see power and the abuse of it, right? But there's no getting around the fact that God has created human beings to have power in the world, to to have power in creation. Uh, we are supposed to be God's representative in creation, in the world, placed in the garden to subdue, to work with, to bring new order to, to refine, uh, to tend, to care for the things that God has made. And our dominion is, is, is what we employ to do those things. It means agency. To have dominion is to have agency, to have an effect on the world around us. Uh, our choices matter and they actually do impact the world around us. We have the capacity to make meaningful and, and intentional changes. We have the capacity to envision new things, uh, to explore. Obviously, because of the fall, dominion has been corrupted in as many ways as there are people, but in two particular ways. Into domination, which is a ramping up of dominion, uh, and a, a way of using our dominion for, to, to take away the dominion of somebody else, essentially, which is a corruption. And then uh, I've often talked about sort of the other end of the roof to fall off is abdication. Um, basically just surrendering to passivity and not really rising to the challenge of 
being a human with dominion. I'm not really going to get into any detail there, but there's, there's, there's two, two extreme corruptions of dominion. And it's like falling off one side of the roof or the other side of the roof. But even so, the longing for challenge and the exploration, um, the longing for newness and astonishment, I think is an indication of what we were made for. It's the call of our own dominion, right? Uh, We are sensing our own capacity and even maybe our own responsibility that we were made to have to impact the world around us. Uh, And this is true of people who've never read Genesis and know nothing about the image of God. It's the desire that's maybe deeply buried to fulfill our creational purpose, to be a real agent in the world, to make a difference, to leave a mark. And of course, I think people thrive when they're exercising their dominion rightly. People do not thrive when it's taken away. This is why wherever there's slavery, there's slave rebellions. A person whose dominion is squashed or taken away is a a ticking time bomb. That's not what they were made for. Um, for one person to take away the dominion of another person is we see it's one of the most compelling I would say evidences for dominion being a real thing what happens when you take it away it's never good never good that's dominion what about trust it is because we are in the image of God that we can relate to him personally only a person can have a personal relationship with someone else And while it's appropriate that we exercise our dominion when relating to the rest of creation, we relate to God very differently. When we look to God, it is as a part of creation. And this is something that the church has not emphasized enough. Uh, We've emphasized the the way in which human beings stand over creation as being image bearers. But the other reality, which Schaefer actually was very clear on, is that in another sense, we're just part of creation. We are integrally connected and dependent on creation. Uh, we are just one of God's creatures. We share a day in the, in the creation narrative with the other land mammals. Right? And this is who we are. And uh, a lack of understanding of that is one of the reasons behind why the church has treated the environment so poorly and, and, uh, and not actually defended uh, or argued for the, for the responsibility of Christians to care for the natural world. In any case, that is a, that is a tangent, but important. Um, we relate to God as part of creation totally dependent on him in every sense Uh, we don't have dominion over him Uh, in our status as small and dependent creatures we are called upon to put our trust in God only no one and nothing else not princes, not chariots and horses I don't know how many people put their trust in chariots and horses today, but um, whatever the modern equivalent is, fancy cars. Uh, not in money, not in military allies, not even in religious observance. Don't put your trust in that either. That's one of Jesus' main, main uh, battles to fight against the Pharisees. who really did put their trust in, in religious observance. God alone has shown himself to be the provider, the refuge, the rock. Think of all the lists. Uh, a list of, of ways of describing God as the one to trust. The fortress, strength, helper, shepherd, very real help in time of need, the giver of every good gift, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. These are all reasons to trust God and nothing else. What else can compare? Who else can compare to that? Um, we need God in the words of Psalm 23. 
to make us lie down in green pastures and lead us beside still waters. Because we're sheep, the implication. And sheep, if they're not led to quiet waters, I was told by one of my Old Testament professors, they try to drink out of not still waters and they fall in the stream and drown. You don't want to let a sheep drink out of a rushing mountain river. It doesn't end well. You need still waters. Um, we need God to do that for us, to provide for us. It's in Him, in Christ, that we have rest. Jesus, Jesus literally says, come, knock, and the door will be open to you. There's no, there's no more fundamental image of homecoming and of welcome. You belong here. The whole of the Christian story can be told as an extension of hospitality from God to us. The presence of God was a safe place in the beginning. It became a dangerous place for us because of our sin and His holiness. And then the entire rest of the narrative, in one sense, can be understood as God making a way for us to come back to His presence again. You think of the the temple, uh, the the curtain in the temple ripping as, as a sign of that, as a visual aid to help us understand that God's hospitality is what we depend on in every sense. So I think we see the other longing is met here, the longing to come home, to be known, to feel safe and secure. This is the call of our dependence. It's also the reminder that we are to trust God. The desire that we have, and again it may be very deeply buried in us, to simply accept our status as creatures and to trust Him. To finally give up running away and trying to build shelters ourselves. Uh, To stop manufacturing our own security by accumulating possessions and money. Um, Like the prodigal son in uh, the Gospel of Luke, we need to come to ourselves and realize that we actually have a home to return to. It's there. So to trust God with all of our being is really our calling and our duty. He has shown himself to be faithful And so, the appropriate response is trust. So the point here that I'm trying to make is, we have deep desires for both challenge and security, and these desires occur in us in order that we might respond well to God's call, to have dominion and to trust Him. It's important to note that I think that uh, dominion and trust don't neatly correspond to leaving home, literally, and coming home, literally. Uh, It's much more complicated than that. You think of setting out in life, taking risks, maybe leaving your parents home and applying for a job at a new city or something, whatever it is. Uh, This is an expression of our dominion, but it's also the time in life when we need to trust God. (laughs) The two things are not in conflict with each other. They're they're often one and the same thing. To exercise our dominion often demands deep trust that he is with us, that he has our good in mind, deep trust in his grace, that I can take a risk, and fail miserably, and God's love hasn't evaporated for me. His love wasn't dependent on my success in the first place. It was dependent on his character, which hasn't changed even as I fail. Similarly, uh, when we think of our literal homes, uh, they are ideally a place of trust, they should be, and of security, a place of being known and loved, and yet home is a place in which we practically exercise dominion all the time. 
to organize, to envision, to clean, do the dishes, to put an extension on our house, to create order out of chaos, to initiate a, a challenging conversation with a family member, whatever it is, uh, our dominion is exercised in all kinds of practical ways right at home. So our homes are and should be marked by our dominion. So, that is to say, dominion and trust are required of us all the time, often at the same time. They're not different activities. Uh, they are, are ways of being that are often uh, simultaneously functioning. And now, lastly, I just want to talk about what does it mean to have an apologetic of longing, this last section here. I want to say that uh, all the longing we see in humans is an indication first that we were made. And they're also an indication, as we have seen, of how and why we were made. They are the, in a sense, the raw material for relating to God that he's placed in us. And we use the raw material wrongly sometimes, but it's still the raw material for relating to God. A potentially fruitful thing we can do in our interactions with people who are not Christians, I think, is to encourage our friends to, to identify their own longings, to name them. Where do they come from? What do you do with them? Are they meant to lead us towards anything real or not? Are they just arbitrary? I think for many people, life is all about the individual figuring out what their deepest desires are and then pursuing them. I I spoke yesterday about self-actualization, this idea that we all have this potential. You need to discover what your potential is and just pursue it with all the the strength you have. Follow your heart is another way to to speak about the same thing. Uh, We live in a world that expects us to create our own meaning and then pursue it with deep conviction. And we're told in a myriad of ways to follow our hearts, to be true to ourselves, to be authentic to ourselves. And this sounds great and inspiring to many of us, but there's an enormous number of people who, even after pursuing their heart's desire, who have made personal happiness their priority, are completely dissatisfied and restless and disillusioned and empty. The world is full of people for whom following their heart has failed, or people for whom following their heart is about to fail. Or will, eventually. And this is not just the people who have failed to achieve their own goals in life. This is the people who have actually succeeded in the goals they set out to achieve. Think of the people who finally make their first million and realize, oh, is this this all? What else was there to life? I'm a huge fan of Randy Newman's music, and he writes very, very cynical, disturbing songs sometimes. Not his Pixar music, but his, his, uh, his sort of solo album music, and uh, he has this great song where he just, and it's such a depressing line, he just says, uh, and it's, only, it's depressing because of his performance, how he actually says the line, but he says, I guess most of my dreams have come true, <laughs> and it's the way he sings it, it's just so completely bored and jaded, and you know, a result of maybe not having very grand dreams, but also just like, yeah, I've got most of what I set out to get in life. He <coughs> <laughs> um, communicates a lot with how he how he sings it. But think of all the story, yeah, all the stories of people who've made their fortune and and, uh, and still find uh, that it's not enough. I don't know what what else there is, but this isn't enough. The question is, was there anything to these longings at all in the first place, or were they a complete sham from the beginning? 
was the longing to explore and set out just self-indulgent, arrogant, entertainment-seeking? Was the longing to come home just weakness and overdependence and sentimentality? It was a cynical voice that would say, yep, this is all a load of crap. <laughs> just get used to the meaninglessness of life. These desires don't correspond to anything real. You just need to get over it and toughen up. You're just reverting to childish need for, for adventure and security, and an adult would just get over these things. And I want to stress that um, this other possibility, which I think we need to stress to our friends, which is that um, actually those desires were a true, although flawed, indication of a very worthy object that really exists. Um, that if we had sought it, would not have broken our hearts. Something real that we have not yet found, but is nonetheless real. And if we've been chasing shadows of the real thing, uh, what and where is the real thing? What is the hidden object behind these longings? So I want to, I want to uh, indulge in a metaphor here. I've um, spent the last couple years learning uh, how to fly fish. I'm still learning. This, this, it'll be a lifelong thing. I think I love, I love it. It's something that uh, excites me. And uh, I want you to imagine an image here. You're on a boat and you're going fishing. And suddenly you, yeah, you cast, cast your line out and you feel a very, very big tug on the line. <clears throat> and you can tell by the intensity of the tug and the way your, your, your rod is bent, bent over, almost snapping, that this is a big fish. It doesn't take you long to... to discover that and you fight the fish you slowly reel it in it rips line off your reel and you reel it in again back and forth you don't want the line to break so you're, you're playing it very carefully um, the rod bends down to the water you can't see the fish but you can feel how big it is as it gets closer you can see the surface of the water start to churn this is, you know, it's called, people call it the boil on the surface of the water you can't see the fish yet but it's like stirring up the water uh still invisible, uh, but as it changes directions, it's so powerful that the water, the water turns. Um, and what if that was all? What if that was what fishing consisted of? <clears throat> what if the whole point of fishing was just to feel the tug on your rod and to see the water move and then there was nothing more to it? It's hard to imagine how it could be interesting at all or satisfying at all, and, and people probably wouldn't go fishing anymore. Um, it's hard to imagine people being satisfied with splashes on the surface of the water, um, trying to convince ourselves that this was what it's really all about. <clears throat> because, of course, the only reason why the tug and the boil on the water are so exhilarating is because you know there's something real, a real living thing, under the surface, and it's doing the tugging and the churning. That's the only reason why fishing is exciting, right? <laughs> uh, the excitement of fishing, or the excitement of catching a big fish for most people is the anticipation of seeing it, and maybe even having it in your hand, uh, of having it finally break the surface and show itself. And when it does show itself, it is undeniably real. Uh, it's angry, 
doesn't like you at all. It's slippery and it's spiny, maybe even toothy, um, and very real. And I, the reason I mentioned this as a metaphor is that I think so much of the pursuit of happiness in the people we see today is trying to be satisfied with the splashes on the surface of the water, uh, trying to convince ourselves that this is what life is about. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, in The Weight of Glory, a very famous line where he says, uh, we're busy fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. It's not because desire, he goes on to say, it's not because our desires are too strong to get us into trouble. It's because our desires are too weak. This kid doesn't have an imagination big enough to envision what the ocean would be like. So he's satisfied with a puddle. Right? It's a picture of weak desires, not strong desires. <clears throat> The splashes, back to the fishing analogy, this is where, this is my, where I want to be here. Uh, the splashes are exciting, but they're only indications of something deeper and much more substantial that we're longing for without knowing. So the proper and satisfying object of our deepest desires is like the huge fish under the surface. We may see its effects on the surface, but we will not be satisfied ultimately until we have it in hand or we see it. That's a tarpon. Pretty awesome fish. I like that picture because the little kid touching you. I think someone stronger probably holding the rod. <laughs> he gets to touch this thing as it goes by. <clears throat> um, no one would go through the trouble of fishing if there was not something real under the water. If, if the tug and, all, and the frothing water didn't mean something. So, what's the apologetic value of this? I think encouraging people to take note of what they long for and ask the question why can be a very good place to start. There's no formula for how to relate to people and how to uh, evangelize, but there is uh, some helpful places to start. I think this is one of them. There's there's many. uh, Do the things we long for actually correspond to something real outside our heads or not? If not, then why do we have those desires? Are they just arbitrary? Are they there to torment us? Are we, are we made to just run after things that we can never ultimately uh, find? It seems to me that everything depends on whether or not we were intentionally made. Were we made for the purpose or not? If we were made by God, then there's nothing strange about our thirst for astonishment and safety. The doctrine of creation validates and gives meaning to our longings. There are, they are placed in us for the purpose and their ways of knowing God. You think of uh, Ecclesiastes, it talks about he has also placed, set eternity in the human heart. Um, I had a pastor once who, who did a, a sermon on redemptive discontent that comes really from God. We're supposed to be discontent when we're looking for things that aren't God, right? And so there's a redemptive discontent um, an intentional seed planted in us that would never be content with anything less than God himself. So uh, if there is no creator and no intention behind our existence, these very same human desires become something to ultimately dismiss, if we're honest, to condescend to and dismiss. We should be in the business of encouraging people that they need not dismiss these desires. 
C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, he talks about uh, <clears throat> the fact that I desire something does not mean that I will get it. That's just a cold, hard fact of life. The fact that I desire something does not mean that I'll get it. But it just might indicate that that object exists. If I'm hungry, it doesn't mean I will get food. But it does indicate that a thing called food exists somewhere. Right? And that food is the way that I satisfy my hunger. And this is his way of pointing to the reality of, of heaven, of the Lord himself. I'm going to end with just going back to that passage from G.K. Chesterton. I wish to set forth my faith as particularly answering this double spiritual need. The need for that mixture of the familiar and the unfamiliar, which Christendom has rightly named romance. We need so to view the world as to combine an idea of wonder and an idea of welcome. And I think this is one of the most encouraging things about the Christian faith. We can, we, we can affirm that these things are real. That actually our, our uh, desire for wonder and welcome are actually found. They're not just naive and meaningless. That's where I'm going to end. I'm not really sure what, what our time frame is, but I'd like people to ask questions or raise issues if they want to. What for some people? Boring. Boring, okay, yeah. But I think if we also instruct our understanding of heaven, that it will be adventure, awe, wonder, mm-hmm. continual learning, mm-hmm. I think it will be a richer understanding. Right, yeah. And I think, I think part of it, um, that's very true, yeah. I think, I think this idea that, um, I wonder whether some of that attitude comes from a, a more a Greek understanding of what perfection is as being something static. Uh, eternity in, in Greek terms is something unchangeable and static and if it's perfection it can't be changing because if perfection changes it will be less than perfect. right? So perfection is somehow this eternal thing and if that idea gets smuggled into the notion of, of life with God for all eternity um, yeah, I can understand why it comes across as kind of boring. Because we're talking about stasis. Um, but that's not, that's not the image of, the, of, the, of, of goodness that the Bible gives us in the beginning, in terms of creation. I don't, neither is it the image that we have of the new heaven and the new earth, which is our ultimate future. Um, the, uh, the Hebrew idea of, of goodness is much more dynamic. Like in creation... It, in one sense, it's perfect and that the fall hasn't happened and sin hasn't marred the good things God has made. But there's potential for, different, for, for people to work and to change things and to create more order. And it's, it's a dynamic reality. It's not a static perfection. And uh, 
I think there's a, a lot to be said for trying to get back to our notion of what, 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 what's the Hebrew understanding of things that, that hasn't been, um, I don't know, sort of, uh, in some ways diverted by more Greek understandings. I'm not sure. Um, but I think, I think Schaefer was very um, excited to tell people that he, he expected to, to go on learning forever in heaven. Um, there's um, biblical support for this idea that we'll be ruling and there'll be work to do, that there'll be all kinds of things to do that, that, that don't imply static perfection, right? But imply continued development. But continued development without sin and death and all the things that came as a result of the fall. Yeah. So I, I think I, my sense is that more people would find heaven appealing if we, if we were a little clearer about those things. <laughs> Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I what you said about them not asking us to have try to build the desires of one person for the, the mm-hmm. sense of like awe and also security. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of wondering what you think the balance is. Because um, it's also on the same side, it sounds like we're not going to find any security or mm-hmm. it's because we want to get so much and also feel safe with people. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering what you think the Sort of balances in terms of what's a healthy amount to either get from or ask for other communities for the sense of security, and then also not like usurping that role from that. Mm. Is that kind of balance between? Oh man. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think on some level, maybe uh, those questions. I don't want to say they take care of themselves because maybe they don't but if, if we're in right relationship with God yeah. seeking God and uh, seeking to know him in his in his majesty and in his and in his closeness to us um, that's going to help a lot <laughs> um, we have to be totally uh, clear eyed about Whoever, whoever the other person is as, as, a, as a limited person, a finite person, as well as a sinful person. It's not just that someone will fail to meet my expectations of being awesome, but they will actually hurt me. You know? Um, particularly if I'm in close relationship with them. <laughs> and so that's something that we need to expect. Not, not something that we should celebrate or welcome, but expect. Um, uh, but I think, in, say, in, in marriages, I think it is an important thing to security and and uh, is very important, and and has, and trust is very important, and to to not be uh, a totally unpredictable. I mean, you think of this in parenting too. To, to 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 be a stable person who who uh, is a way of making a safe home, <laughs> and there's something very very good about that. But even the most responsible, most uh, safe and trustworthy parent isn't able to protect their kids from some things, right? We're still finite. And so we need to be honest about that. And, uh, and, I, and I think, honestly, the, the, the whole idea of, like, I, you know, I need security in my, in my partner, but also I need to be just excited and, you know, all the time. That, that's something that... Um, that attitude can die pretty hard, but I think it's I think it's there is something to be said for the, the long haul in relationships where we actually if we are really committed to knowing this other person, we'll be learning new things about them. It might not be like, 
an action film every day. <laughs> but but it, has to, it has to do, it's directly related to our um, disciplined efforts to love them and know them. And uh, ideally, their, their efforts to do the same. So, I don't know if that answers the question, but it's it, yeah. Anybody else? I appreciate this is when I go to conferences. This slot, the very last lecture, is I, I always struggle to stay awake because there's been so much input and it's after lunch and it's and so I feel like all my all my dozing uh, in past years uh, was maybe the reason why God gave me the last slot lecture here. Uh, and. But I, I appreciate. I saw a lot of alert faces out there, so I appreciate it. Any any last questions, or maybe we should wrap it up. Anybody? Yeah. My question is, uh, you know, we talk about like desires and uh, like them being too like not big enough, I guess. And, mm-hmm. and um, I guess for me, being 40 and having a family and stuff. I mean, I don't want to suppress my desires and not do anything and have grand adventures, but there's also this sense of, well, I can't, like, go, you know, ch- you know, just do crazy things, for mm-hmm. instance. But, like, how do you fit, like, a sense of adventure and a sense of, like, excitement and doing interesting things and fun things and mm-hmm. new things and risky things in the context of, you know, um, a family man that you know goes to work, you know, it's not, yeah. you know, regular job. Yeah. How do I how do I seek my desire for newness and challenge and adventure when I am an integral part of someone else's desire for safety, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. That's uh, yeah. That, that is. I mean, on, on some, to some degree, we have to be present where we are. And to, to be open to the possibility that maybe the, uh, the the challenge and the newness that God has for us is different than what we might have envisioned. Um, you know, the challenge might be to think really hard and creatively about how to be a better father to my kids. <laughs> uh, and the more we invest in that, the, the more of a, I think, more excitement you'll find. <laughs> If, if we if we get stuck in a rut of viewing our, our kids and our family as just an obstacle to all the cool things we want to do, then um, then that's trouble. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's not to say that you know spouses can't allow their their spouses to get out and do do things, and, and not at all, of course not. But but um, I think uh, I think it's a it's a it's a challenging thing. I think I think for for me, I think it has it has to do with just coming to grips with the fact that I'm a part of a team now, being married and with kids, and, and, and anything uh, that I might want to do that, that that excludes my kids, I'll have to, to negotiate that with my wife <laughs> and, and allow her to do the same and, uh, and, and, and be okay with the limitations that having a family really puts on me. Because it does put limitations on us. And if we if we pretend it does, if we if we pretend that we'll we should have the same level of freedom that we did when we were single and twenty, then we're really gonna mistreat our families. I think, um, and it's, it's one of the reasons Paul says, you know, remain single. You have a lot more freedom if 
you get married, then you can't just do the kind of thing I'm doing. You know, people who are married and with small kids and want to live a life like Paul, I think Paul would say, nope, don't do that. <laughs> you, you have, your, your calling is, involves a uh, family now. So, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's, there's so much is, this has to be worked out practically daily, you know, but, um, yeah. Any other stuff? Yeah. I, I have to jump in that, but I think part of being a father is to teach your children to be adventurers. Mm-hmm. Part of other business is to teach your children to be adventurers. So, you know, don't go at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would never say that. No. <laughs> yeah. Was there one more question up here? Yeah, maybe last one. Yeah. I, I think in my 60s, but I find the adventure is not. Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.